We're, we're podcasting live from the Islamic Center of Central Missouri, Columbia, Missouri. Praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We beseech him to send his peace and blessings upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina Rasulullah, rahmatullah. And upon his uh, pure family and his companions and those who follow him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and this ummah to the end of time. Dear brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. I want to thank the community here in Colombia. I came, I don't know if some of you remember about the Jum'ah fiasco, maybe nine years ago. So the brother that came to pick me up from Jum'ah was a little bit late and I missed the Jum'ah prayer. And I think you made the biha of that brother. <laughs> since that time. Is still, the volume needs to be done. So I need to talk to the program manager, I'm just a guest, <laughs> not the DJ. I was before I was Muslim. So I came, I think, nine years ago, and the brother, he forgot to pick me up for Jum'ah, Basala Mabuhan. And I know a number of people in this community, as well as St. Louis uh, community, Sheikh Muhammad Noor. I lived in St. Louis 16 years ago, uh, and I missed you there for a long time. So it's a community that I know very well, and uh, very happy to see a lot of the children uh, many years ago now are, mashallah, in college and working and doing well and struggling uh, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's deen and this progression, uh, this development uh, is something which is, alhamdulillah, praiseworthy. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless this community and uh, to increase this community goodness, uh, inshallah, to protect her, uh, this community and bless your children, inshallah, as well as those. Sister, I believe, Anna, who just became Muslim. Uh, the topic is the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Just quickly before we talk about some points in the Sunnah, uh, for understanding the Sunnah, because the lecture is, uh, that I was given is to understand the Sunnah. The Sunnah. How to understand the Sunnah. And there's a difference between knowledge and understanding. Uh, and if we look at Al-Ilm, there are different levels of understanding that we should know. First is what's called a Ta'aruf to become somewhat familiar with something, to have like an interest. And the word ta'aruf, uh, if you turn up the volume really loud, as a DJ I can advise you with this, you're going to blow your speakers and nobody's going to hear me also. So, So if you can't hear, then listen stronger, try to listen. So, you should try to listen. I can hear myself, so you should be able to hear me. That's the rule of thumb. Um, but we talk about knowledge. The first is a ta'aruf, which means to become familiar with something, uh, even in passing. That's why the word af in Arabic actually means something that you smell. So, for example, in Egypt, in the morning when they cook the ragif, we say af al That's like a smell that's spreading. I told you. And the reason they call it af is because as you smell it, initially, when you smell something, you're not sure what it is. So you slowly acquire the knowledge of that thing. That's why it's called ma'rifah. Ma'rifah to shame. 
And that's why we, we don't say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allahu A'raf. We say Allahu A'raf. Because ma'rifah bima'na subiqat bil jahl. We said that something has ma'rifah, it means that it was preceded by ignorance. And this is muhad, and this is impossible. We're talking about Allah because Allah is Ali, subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one who knew and he will always know. And he was never ignorant of anything, subhanahu wa ta'ala, alimun hakim. So the first is ta'aruf, to try to get to know something. When you meet someone, we call this ta'aruf in Arabic. And after that, there's ta'allum, to try to learn. And the form of the verb tafa'ul, ta'allum, as Ibn Mari said, وَبَعْرُفَ الْفَعْلُ مَا يَحْكُمْ تَصَرُّفَهُ يَحُزْ مِنَ لُغَةِ الْأَبْوَابَ وَالسُّبُرَ Which I cannot translate, but he's talking about the, the need to learn and understand verbs in Arabic, the different forms of verbs. فَهَاكَ نَظْمَ مِنْ بُحِيمٍ بِالْمُحِيطِ And he continues, رَحِمُهُ But here, the verb ta'allum implies that the person burdened himself to study. That they took it upon themselves to learn. That they were not lazy. And that's why the Prophet said, He said, the best of you are those who burden themselves, task themselves, if you will, to study the Quran. So the next is to learn, to gain some literacy, to have some basic knowledge. After learning comes المقارنة, to compare what you study with something else. We call it in, in teaching, compare and contrast. And that's what we have in Al-Azhar, one of the classes that we take for four years, all semester, but all semesters for four years, is fiqh al-muqarana, comparative fiqh. So you can understand and see how fiqh works, how fiqh is different than this, why Abu Hanifa did this, why Malik said this, why the Ja'fari said this, and so on and so forth. After muqarana is al-fahm. So al-fahm is like the fourth or fifth level of understanding that comes, and also actually before that's what's called al-ta'amuq, which is scholarship, to, to dive deep into the knowledge. And, and the fruit of this is al-fahm, is understanding. After understanding comes tabiq, to practice, to apply. After that comes synthesis, to synthesize. And the last level of ilm is al-muhasabah, to evaluate yourself. And that's why uh, uh, even in Western education, they consider the highest level of knowledge for somebody who has it themselves, for someone to be able to evaluate themselves. And what is one of the major goals of Islam? Is to constantly evaluate yourself. Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu said, evaluate yourself before you're evaluated by Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala equated knowledge with evaluation and muhasaba when he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the second to the last page of Surah Al-Baqarah, and fear Allah, and as some ulama said here, the well bima'na sababiya, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will teach you. So he equates piety with ill, the highest level of ill, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And any knowledge that doesn't lead to this recognition, which doesn't lead to benefit in this life and the next, is categorized as ilm as knowledge that doesn't benefit. And knowledge that doesn't benefit is of two. 
Number one, which doesn't bring any masalih, dunyawiyya, wala ukhrawiyya. Which doesn't bring benefit for this life or the next life. That's why the Prophet said, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min ilmin la yanfa. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from knowledge which doesn't benefit. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The second is knowledge which might be beneficial, but the person doesn't act on it. So they don't practice what they know, and this is equivalent to jahl. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran he said, وَلَقَرَ عَلِمُوا لَمَنْ اشْتَرَهُ مَا لَهُ فِي الْآخِرَةِ مِنْ خَلَاقَ وَلَبِئْسَ مَا اشْتَرَوْا بِهِ أَنفُسَهُمْ لَوْ كَانُوا يَعْلَمُونَ Here in this verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, for those of you who are educators, is as we say in Misr Haga Alima Awi, something subhanAllah incredible. إِثْبَاتْ مَا النَّفِي وَلَقَدْ عَلِمُوا لَوْ كَانُوا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and walaqad means, you know, for sure, like I said yesterday. You know, for real. So for real, they knew that what they purchased of magic was a vein for them in the hereafter. <clears throat> and indeed, it was the worst thing they purchased if they only knew. So the verse begins by saying that for real, they have knowledge. Wallahi, they have knowledge. And the verse at the end says, they don't have knowledge. So commenting on this, Sheikh uh, Muhammad Ali says, who was the Amir of Kulit al-Sharia in uh, Al-Azhar some years ago, rahimahullah. He said, because they knew that engaging in magic was forbidden, but they did it anyways, so that it was though the knowledge did not what? Did not exist. And since it didn't exist, it's equal to ignorance. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, they knew, then after he said, they don't know anything, even though they knew, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we talk about understanding, we're talking about the fourth or fifth tier of what falls under ilm. And we have to teach this way. Unfortunately, one of the problems in North America, since I came back, is like an ilm smorgasbord. Every group and every sheikh and every manhaj and every type of organization is teaching. This is great. But what happens is if the, or- the knowledge is not organized, as Imam Walsabi Muhammad rahimahullah talked about, and set in a way that creates tarbiyah, and trains a Muslim not only to be intellectually astute, but also ethically sound, we have a problem. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the Qur'an, He says, وَلَكِنْ كُنُوا رَبَّانِيِينَ بِمَا كُنْتُمْ تُعَلِّمُونَ الْكِتَابِ وَبِمَا كُنْتُمْ تَدْرُسُونَ Allah says, be rabbani, from the word Rabb, because the Rabbani is the one who teaches people stage by stage, step by step. And this actually is mentioned in the Quran, this process. In the end of Surah Al-Fatih, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the companions of the Prophet, sallallahu Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the likeness of the Sahaba, <coughs> that the likeness of the Sahaba is like a seed, and a weak stem came out of the seed and grew over time, finally able to stand on its own. So the ulama said, the seed is Muhammad and the stem is his companions who started weak and the, the seed continually gave them, continually gave them, continually gave them this tarbiyah until what? They could stand on their own and become from those radiallahu anhum wa As the writer of the seven habits talks about the law of the farm, building people over time and developing a curriculum which will empower American Muslims. Using the English language is of utter importance if we're going to arrive at understanding. Wallahi, I went to one, I, actually I entered into a kutab, 
I've been blessed to learn the American for Kutte. I studied in a classical school in Egypt, uh, in America. And people ask me, "I na taalam ta lugha da Audi?" I said, "I learned in Okiluma, Oklahoma, Okiluma." Then they told me, "Ala tariqat e?" I said, "Ala tariqat shanaqita," because my first teacher was from Senegal, but before was part of Mauritania. So I remember when I became Muslim, Allah yarhamu wa Allah reward him and bless him. He made me memorize these mutun. But this is very difficult for, you know, honestly speaking, for people who don't speak Arabic. فَكُنَّ يَيَقُولُ عَبْدُ وَاحِدِ بْنِ عَشْرِ مُقْتَرِيًا إِلَى إِنَّ الصَّوَانَ الصَّفَوَتْ فَرَائِدُ وَدُوْ عِسَبَاتٌ وَهِدَاقٌ وَفَوْلِيَةٌ فِي بَدِيهِ Those of you who are from the Maghrib and are Maliki, you know all of these mutun. But this is very hard for someone who doesn't speak Arabic to memorize and study this way. So one of the things we have to talk about when we talk about fahm of the Sunnah is also that there should be, as I talked to one of the young brothers today about, a, a construct or a set of educational processes which empower American Muslims to understand. We cannot simply talk about understanding if there is no wasail. And that's why they say there's no taklif bila al-wasail. That there's no obligating the people if there's no means, if there's no possibility of attaining understanding. So when we talk about understanding, we have to realize it's different than knowledge. And that's why Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Al-A'zam rahimahullah ta'ala, when someone came to him and asked him, he was sitting with Al-A'mash, the muhaddith al-mashur, and Al-A'mash can yawi al-hadith. In those days, young brothers, on their iPhones and iPads and droids, was hadith. Not single ladies, man. <laughs> and, and your habibi Allah and all this stuff. Well, habibi Allah. La, a hadith. So he was reading hadith to Abu Hanifa. And one man, he came to him, وَاسْتَفْتَى Abu Hanifa. And he asked Abu Hanifa for fatwa. But before Abu Hanifa could answer, Al-A'mash said, I don't know. The guy who was reading hadith to Abu Hanifa, he said, I don't know. Then Abu Hanifa, he answered, this man. And then the man he left, Al-A'mash, he asked Abu Hanifa, مَنْ أَيْنَ جِئْتِبْ بِهَذَا الْجِوَابِ He said, where did you get the answer from? And Abu Hanifa said, from the hadith you just relate to me. Abu Hanifa, he didn't memorize the hadith, he didn't know the hadith, but he knew how to make istinbat of the hadith. He knew how to draw from it rulings and understandings. So here is a good example in Islam of the difference between understanding and knowing. Ilm and fahm. So when he asked him, he doesn't know the answer, even though he memorized the hadith. But Abu Hanifa, who didn't memorize the hadith, he answers him based on the understanding of the hadith. And that's what we call the person who deals with rulings, the faqih. And faqih in Arabic comes from the word fa'il, the siqh of fa'il, which means like ana tawil, kada, an tawm. I said, anta sameen, I said, a'udhu billah, min shaitan i, rajim, kaman. Sifat al-mushabbah, tawil, sameen, rajim. You didn't get the joke. There's no Egyptians here, man. Egyptians here, they will laugh. So, subhanAllah, the faqih is the one as the ulama, sahib lisa Arab, the writer of Islam, the great dictionary said, the faqih is the one who understands and has acquired the habit of understanding. So, fahm and fiqh have a similar meaning. And we talk about understanding the sunnah is different than ma'rifat sunnah, knowing the sunnah. But understanding the sunnah implies what? After understanding, tatbiq, the application of the sunnah. How the sunnah should be understood. 
And one of the problems we have to deal with in America now, especially amongst the convert community, is are we going to accept dysfunctional scholarship instead of practical literacy? Everybody, when you talk to them, oh, I want to be like Sheikh Qaradawi, I want to be like Sheikh Abu Baz, I want to be like Hamza Yusuf in Arabic, I want to be Abdul Basit. Ya Mawlana, calm down. It's like the youth we talk to. What do you want to be? I want to be LeBron James. Yeah, Sheikh, you're 18 and you're 5'3", bro. <laughs> I ain't going to be LeBron James. <laughs> Barring a karama. It's just not going to happen. Right? And one of the reasons that we tend to do this is we do not appreciate the effort that it takes for scholarship. حَتَّى مَجْمَعَ الْبَحْرَيْنِ أَوْ أَمْضِيَ حُقُبًا When Musa went to seek knowledge, and he worked hard, he traveled. And that's why one of the conditions of seeking knowledge is to travel. As mentioned by Imam Ibn Khaldun, rahimahullah. Masruq, he went from Medina to Basra for a hadith. And he traveled, he worked, he put forth effort. But if we think the scholarship is, oh, I can just watch some salat on the dish and read a few books here and there, or ba'adini, I can like, you know, say whatever I want about the religion, this is the biggest sign that we don't respect the religion. Respecting the scholarship that's needed to understand and apply. Imam Ibn Qayyim said that understanding comes with two things, two conditions. Number one is knowing the religion in a detailed fashion. And here he means mostly the usul of the religion, the fundamentals of the religion, needed to understand texts. We'll talk about this as we have time. And secondly, he said, is to understand where you are, the hood that you live in, to be able to apply what you understand from religion within the context of where you live. And he said, if you miss an al-alam, he said, if you lack one of these, then you are not someone who has been given a sound understanding of deen. And he said, those people who have been given sincerity and a sound understanding of Islam are Ahlul Surat Mustaqeem. And those, the people that straight away, and those who have understanding without sincerity are Maghdubi Alayhim, those who Allah's anger is upon them. And those who have sincerity without knowledge are Dali, are those who went astray. So the Muslim who's on the truth is the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed him to have a sound understanding, which means understanding religion and understanding his reality and her reality. And secondly, being sincere in their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We talk about understanding the sunnah. Something that we have to engage in is how to acquire literacy. Because literacy, ta'arruf and so on, are the first tiers of knowledge. So now we're not going to get into like, al-a'at wal-khas, wal-bet wal-mutlaq, wal-la. Wal-nasikh, wal-mansukh, and so on. Wal-ta'arruf, bayna al-nas. La. It's not easy for us to engage in that. Wal-ta'arir bil-maqasir, wal-masalih. You need to look at the sunnah from the point of what's beneficial for the community and what's not the role of the faqih in how he deals with the sunnah. You cannot start talking like this from day one. That's why it should be like a weekend discussion, understanding the sunnah. But there are some steps that the ulama, especially of Al-Azhar al-Sharif, for the last three, four, five hundred years, they gave to people to in- engage in a subject from the beginning. To engage a subject. To, to start with certain mubadiq, certain basic principles. And Al-Maqari, rahimahullah, the great, uh, he used to write a lot of poems and rajas, Himar al-Sha'ra, he, he actually wrote these ten basic points of literacy. And I, and I talk to American Muslims now, and they say, you know, I studied this, and I studied this. I said, really? What are the ten basic principles of what you study? I don't know what you're talking about. And you don't know what you're talking about. 
also the idea of fast food nation. Eric Schuler's book, now we have fast food knowledge. Yeah? And it's become very processed. It's not organic. We have mulazima of a shaykh. You take from them their khuluq and their ibadah and their behavior. I remember one of my teachers, Ahmed Udiyai from Senegal. I would wake up and see him at night crying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of my teachers would finish the Quran in one day at 80 years old. He told me, I know it's not the sunnah to finish in less than three days, but I want to leave the dunya with a bang, man. So I want to finish khatam every day. Then I'm not going to say his name. He told me, don't tell anyone I do this. I mean, by my name. So you see, mashaykh, you see how they interact with their families, you see their children. So you take an organic understanding of religion, not just a book understanding of religion. And that's a problem. Ad hoc courses. So once I was in a masjid, and I'm Maliki, so usually I accept in Colombia and Missouri, I pray with my hands to my side. So I remember I was praying with my hands to my side, and one 13-year-old kid came to me and he said, Ya Ammu! I said, yeah. He said, your salah is batila. I said, Wallahi. <laughs> he said, yeah. And this is in America. So he said, you know, he didn't say uncle. He said something more, you know, what's up, dude, or something. And then I said, why? Why is my prayer batila? He said, because you prayed with your hands like this. I said, he didn't know me, and I didn't know him. So I said, mashallah, mashallah, left alayk. You know what Egyptians say, left alayk? <laughs> so I said to him, uh, when did you start studying? He said, at 9.30 this morning. <laughs> and he showed me his little packet that he was studying. Then he said, when did you start studying? I said, about 16 years ago. Then he told me, oh, what's your name? I said, I'm, I'm your brother, Suhaib, when he got scared. Is this the thamara of the knowledge? Is it the fruit of knowledge? When knowledge is equated with behavior, and the campaigns of the Prophet did not divorce knowledge from ethics. Western education, and to many degrees, except now they're trying to bring it back with character education. But certain later scholars of like Dewey and others introduced the idea of divorcing ethics from knowledge. And now even in Kuliyat al-Sharia, in many Muslim countries, you find knowledge without ethics. So consequently, the ugliest, most disgusting restroom is the restroom and put it to Sharia in Al Azhar. Where the Prophet said, Atahuru, Iman. Where's the application or the tarbiyah? I remember I went and I bought a bottle of dental and I threw it on the floor in the Kuli. And the dental made dua against me because I did this to the dental. But what it shows you is what? The absence of tatbiq of the ill, practical application of the knowledge. Yeah, that leads to an understanding which is based in ethics. When Jibreel came to the Prophet and taught him Quran in the months of Ramadan, وسلم, he became more generous. As one of my teachers told me when we read Al-Bukhari with him, when we read Al-Bukhari with him, the Sahih Al-Bukhari, why? Because the more he learns, the more his character improves. Although his character is perfect, Ali but he becomes more generous because the more he learns, the more he gains knowledge, the more he becomes more altruistic in helping others. So now we talk about the sunnah. Let's talk about these 10 basic principles of knowledge, literacy. And we'll stop after that. I'll give you a few points after that and we'll stop. Number one is what's called, he said, Man rama fannan fal yuqaddim awwalan. The Shaykh Ali Jum'ah, he taught us this poem. 
Whoever desires to know a subject, then let him start with the following. Let him start with the definition of that subject. What is it that you're studying? What's its had? Had also means you no know, borders, hudud. But the manatiqa and the ulama, when they talk about defining something, they use this word which means borders because the definition of something has to border it. So it becomes jami'an mani'an. That it starts out inclusive of everything and then it becomes at the end exclusive to itself. This is the way of Islamic scholarship in the past. So, first of all, the definition of the sunnah. What's the definition of sunnah? So the ulama differed. According to the scholars of fiqh, they have a definition of sunnah. According to the scholars of usul fiqh, there is a definition of sunnah which differs. The scholars of hadith have the most comprehensive definition of sunnah and sirah because that's their subject. The scholars of fiqh, their concern with the sunnah is rulings. If he said this wasn't in order, if he said this was it recommended, if he said this is it disliked, if he said this or did this sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is it haram? The scholars of usul fiqh, from the point of its soundness as a proof, and from the point of being tashri'i or ghayri, tashri'i, being something which is legislative in nature, like how he prayed sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and something which is not legislative, for example, the type of clothes he wore, sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, this is the concern of the scholar of usul fiqh, and this shapes his definition. The type of food he liked, the scholar of usul fiqh is not concerned with this, because it doesn't deal, except for the haram and halal of course, it doesn't deal with sunnah tashri'iya, as they talked about. And Imam Ibn Ashur al-Tunasi, rahimahullah, he talked about this quite a bit in his small uh, risala, his epistle on this subject. For the scholar of hadith, everything that came to us about the Prophet from his actions, from his statements, from his silent approvals, from his characteristics inwardly and outwardly, as well as his ghazawat, the battles he took, took on, as well as those people who saw him do things, after his death or before his death, whatever the companion said about him, this is the concern of the scholar of hadith. The scholar of history is concerned with what has to deal with the seerah of the Prophet his lifetime, and those prophets who came before him, who prophesied about him. But in general, to make it simple, we can say the definition of the Prophet Sunnah are his statements, his actions, and his silent approvals, and his characteristics inwardly or outwardly that have been passed down to us through acceptable chains of narration. This is the Sunnah of the Prophet Mawdu' what, what is the subject matter of the Sunnah? Is Muhammad And here's where they differ. Is it just what he did in the area of rulings? Is it what he did which wasn't Sharia related? And so on and so forth. Depending on the subject you study, the definition changes. Then he said, Rahimahullah uh, Ta'ala, after Mawdu'in Tala, Wanisbatin. He said, وَوَاضِعٍ وَنِسْبَةٍ وَمَسْتُمِدْ مِنْهُ وَفَضٍ وَحُكْمٍ يُعْتَمَدٍ He said, Al-Maqari in his poem, after that, is knowledge of what? Knowledge of the one who was the first to organize the science. And in this case, it's Imam Al-Zuhri, rahimahullah ta'ala, as he was ordered by uh, Umar bin Abdul Aziz to, to collect the sunnah of the Prophet what family of knowledge does it belong to? What's his genus? 
So here we say this belongs to the family of revelation. The Prophet وسلم, his sunnah is revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What are the other sciences needed? The prerequisites before someone can study the sunnah. And I'm shocked sometimes when I see a new Muslim tell me, I want to read Fatul Bari. I say, Fatul Bari, a Shaykh. Fatul Bari, it took him 44 years to write Fatul Bari. Start with Riyad Salihin. I had one brother tell me, Riyad Salihin, it's not really important. I said, I will be that. How can you say Riyad Salihin is not important? Oh, Riyad Salihin, kid. Right? So these small books of hadith, starting with Al-Bayqaluniyah, and after this, reading the Nukhbah, after this, reading the Muqaddim of Ibn Salah, after this, reading the Hafid Al-Iraqis Al-Fiyah, then As-Suyut Al-Fiyah, and so on and so forth, step-by-step process. The problem that we lack, that we lost, especially the Sunnis, not the Shia. We have to give the Shia credit that their knowledge system is still extremely organized. Extremely organized system. But after the collapse of Al-Azhar and Zaytuna and Qarawin and other major Muslim entities in the world, and they were taken over and they lost their intellectual and academic freedom, they also lost their status as Marji'iyah for the Ummah. And also with colonialization and the spread of Muslims all over the world, which is not necessarily a bad thing, we find an absence of like a compass for the community to follow knowledge. So now everybody is running around like Chicken George. I'm taking knowledge from here, from here, from here, from here. Everything post-modernity, everything's going in my mind. And I can argue with the ulama, why I know everything. I read this book, I read this pamphlet, I heard this lecture. Whatever, whatever, whatever. And in Sunni Islam, we find this crisis. And we find also scholars who might be illiterate when it comes to the populace. And the populace who might be illiterate when it comes to scholarship. But literate in popular culture. So now we find this fissure in the Muslim world. And that's why you see people, mashallah, like Amr Khaled, and people like Sheikh Sha'awi, and, and Faisal Mawlawi, in Lebanon, and other places, Sheikh Salman Awda, who actually have gro- grown in numbers and followers. Why? Because they're the ones who are more literate about what the people are dealing with. So the people feel comfortable that they can relate to them and ask them questions. So we're talking now about those prerequisites that someone should study before they go into the sunnah. So the Arabic language is one of them. The other is some small text in ulum al-hadith or mustalah. And also some usul al-fiqh, so they can understand the sunnah. Usul al-fiqh is the difference between fiqh and usul al-fiqh. I, give, I can give it to you in this way. Fiqh is Kevin Garnett and usul al-fiqh is the referee. Just put it in your mind like this. Usul al-fiqh is the ref. The faqih is the one, Abu Traykayani, the one playing the game. But the usuli is the one who gives him the rules. Wafadlin, what are the virtues of studying the sunnah? It means in the hereafter. How the Prophet said, May Allah illuminate the face of someone who hears something that I said, and they pass it on as though they heard it. So the Prophet makes dua for the one who studies his sunnah. This hadith is a strong hadith. Also, it's ruling. Is it an obligation, an individual obligation, or a group obligation to study the sunnah of the Prophet? Then, Wasmin then he said, the name of the subject and the ulama in Islam, looks like I'm boring you, okay? The ulama of Islam, they're different between the definition and the name. Because kathir man ahyana asmana tadul ala ma'amiha. In Arabic especially, the names don't necessarily tell you about what you're talking about. So one time my daughter, she came from Madrasat al-Ridwan and al-Hayya Sabit in Egypt. So I asked her, durasti ayya habiti? And she said, riyadiyat. 
So I wasn't sure. Riyadiyat yani math, or you did PE. فالاسم لا يدل على المعنى إلى بسياقي. So also in English we have this. So for example, if you go to you know where I live in Northern California, you say surfing, right? And you're close to the Cisco campus. Surfing has a different meaning than if you go to Half Moon Bay and you say let's surf, dude. The meaning changes according to the context and the place. So they're going to begin with a definition and end with the ism on purpose. وَمَا أَثَارَ The benefits in this life, if you study this subject, what is it you're going to gain in this life as well? وَالْمَسَاقِدِ And these are the ten building blocks of learning. When we talk about the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, we have to mention something important. Certain principles to understand his sunnah, and I'll finish. Number one is the role of context. It's very dangerous for people to take a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ without trying to find its context. That's why the ulama of Azhar used to tell us, مَعْرِفَةُ أَسْبَابُ النُّزُوبُ رَافِعًا لِكُلِّ مَشَاكِلٍ He used to tell us that knowing the reason why things were sent and happened, what ahdath, are the cure to most of your problems as a faqih. And we'll take one example, is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where he said, I am free from the one who lives amongst the mushrikeen. Ana bari'un. I'm free from the muqeen, bayna, amongst what? The mushrikeen. This hadith, the disbelievers. This hadith is related by Imam Abu Dawud and Imam Ibn Majah with the sanad, which is jayyid, sahih. But there's a problem. What happens, especially with your young brothers and sisters when they go online and they talk to Shed Google, or even on YouTube, they're going to find people who say, you, you live in America. Yeah, did you know the Prophet is Bari Umik? And even some of us who came to this country, we read this hadith and said, yes, Salam, yes, Attar. But the Prophet said, I am free from the one who lives amongst al-mushrikeen. Does this hadith have a context to it? that will help us understand it. And also, did the scholars of Sunnah and Usul differ on the application of the Hadith? Number one, we go to the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, as related by Imam Al-Aini Al-Hanafi, who's buried in Darul Ahmar, right behind Masjid Al-Azhar, great alama, in his explanation of Sunnah Abi Dawud. We find that the context of this Hadith gives it a different application. And that is in the time of the Prophet when he was at war with some of the tribes of the Bedouins. There were Muslims who lived on the outlying areas of Medina who, de- who decided to stay amongst those warring tribes with the Prophet In those days there was no TV, there was no digital camera, and there was no you know, Facebook. Sah in the Sahara. So the Prophet's companions went and invaded a village who tried to invade Medina earlier. And when they came, the Muslims in that village, the Prophet had warned them, come to Medina, come to Medina, and they get hurt. But they did not heed his warning, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And when the Muslim armies came into the city, they fell into sujood. He said, if we fall into sujood, you know, maybe they will not kill us. Unfortunately, the word didn't spread enough, and many of them did not fall into sujood, and many of them were killed by the Muslims. Their families came to the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and they demanded the blood money. These Muslims killed these Muslims. And then the Prophet said, I'm free of what? I'm free from doing what? From them as my Muslim brothers? For their rights to me as Muslims? Or I'm free from 
I'm absolved of paying what? The blood money. Now the hadith, the understanding and application of the hadith completely changes. Based on what? The context. Now how do you apply that to a convert like this brother here who lives in Missouri, he's going to school, his family's not trying to kill him, you tell him the Prophet and So now the application is wrong. Secondly, there are those ulama who said we have to understand hadith in the context of masalih wal mafasid of the major benefits and harms of sharia. And we find that the shafi's who use this hadith to prove that a Muslim could live amongst the non-Muslims. <laughs> they actually use this hadith to prove their point. And Al-Haythami, who was the head of the Shafi'i Madhab, in his age, he was asked by someone who lived at that time in the lands of the non-Muslims, what does this hadith mean? Is the Prophet Bari'u So he said, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he mentioned the opinion of the majority of the fuqaha, not just the Shafi'is, but all of them. But at the end, he gives it always that the Shafi'is like to do Shafi flavor. He says, Rahimahullah, in his Al-Fatwa Al-Kubra, he said, perhaps when I give you this answer that says you should live amongst the non-Muslims in their lands, you will think that I'm contradicting the hadith of the Prophet who said, I am free from the Muslim who lives amongst the non-Muslims, the polytheists. He said, but what you fail to understand is that this hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, as agreed on by the majority of scholars of fiqh, is conditioned with the following. Number one, that someone cannot practice his Islam at all. Idhaw al-Islam. Which means, according to the fuqaha, he cannot establish the five pillars of Islam and avoid the haram. Yani he doesn't have the freedom to do so. Not that he chooses to do so, he doesn't have the freedom to do so. Secondly, he said, as for the one who cannot do that, do that, then we agree that he should leave that land and go to the land of the Muslims if it's better for him. But listen to the Shafi'i opinion now. And this is the opinion of the fatwa in the madhab. Don't get mad at me, I'm not Shafi'i. The Shafi'i madhab says that if you can live in the land of the non-Muslims and practice your deen, they said it's wajib for you to stay there. This is the opinion of the Shafi'is. Wajib. Did you hear that from Sheikh Google? Or Sheikh YouTube? Like you heard? Hajiru, hajiru, Get out. Right? But you didn't hear this. But Al-Haythami is from the Imma of the Madhab of the Shafi. He's considered one of the scholars of fatwa in the Madhab. He said, an obligation, why? We saw it tonight, why? And when you look at me, you see why. He said, because when you're allowed to live amongst them, and practice your religion, the ultimate maslaha is accomplished. What's the ultimate maslaha? The ultimate benefit is that Allah may use you as a means to guide others. Because the Prophet said, if Allah guides one person through you, خَيْرُ لَكَ مِنْ If Allah guides one person through you, it's better for you than red camels. Red camels, red Bentleys. Red Rolls Royces. So Al-Haythami, he makes ta'lil, he applies the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, as well as the majority of the fuqaha, in the light of what? Al-Masalih, wal-Mafasid. The major benefits that Islam seeks to accomplish, and the first is preservation of religion. So that when people become Muslim, the religion is what? Mahfuz. Even though Allah promised to protect his religion. 
But when he chooses people to protect it, this is made his fadl, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the Prophet said, uh, So now we see the application of the sunnah based on what's going to benefit and bring harm. Now can you imagine if I tell your children, you have to leave this country and go do some crazy butt wild stuff as an imam. And then you turn on the TV and see your kids in prison. Did I look out for your masaleh? Was I as a faqih looking out for the benefits of the community? Or am I throwing your children into harm? So applying hadith also requires understanding the maqasid and understanding the application of sharia. And that's why Al-Haythami Rahimullah said, فَهِيْنَ إِذِنْ يَتَّجِبَ عَلَيْهِ الْإِقَامَةِ هُنَاكِ And that's his quote. He said, in this situation, where someone can live there in peace and tranquility, for the most part, and practice their Islam, and talk about Islam, and live amongst the people, he said, according to the Shafi'i school, and this was the opinion of Al-Shafi'i in Al-Um, by the way, who mentions the statement of the Prophet about Abbas, his uncle, and others who he allowed to live in Mecca. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So now we see a different understanding of a hadith used by certain people that don't have much of a background in studies to shake and undermine your children. And you should be extremely concerned about that. We don't have time to talk about other points of the sunnah as time is running, as you know. But there are a number, a number, a number of lessons we take in understanding it. Like it's not allowed to put the juzhiyat in front of the kulliyat according to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. To let secondary issues in front of the priorities is not from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. I mentioned one today in the khutbah that we should not relate a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ if we're not sure that the entire narration is in front of us. We have to research and make sure that the narration is complete because we're talking on behalf of him ﷺ. Another principle that we take from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is that the scholars differed. Even if a hadith is authentic, and we have to be careful when we find the statements, the hadith is sahih, this is my madhab. What that means if the hadith is sahih according to my usul, according to my understanding. So we find that a hadith could be authentic, but the ulama differ on its application. For example, the statement, are you guys okay? Yeah, yeah. The statement of the Prophet was, I know the Celtics are playing, you want to get home. The statement of the Prophet, but you can tivo it, you can tivo me. The Prophet and people, mashallah, came all the way from St. Louis, some sisters I know, mashallah. So we need to give them some beef, yani. I want to send them away just with Umar Ali. So, and also we have sister became Muslim, so we want to make her night as a Muslim. You know, mashallah, Friday night live, man. <laughs> Just because a hadith is authentic doesn't mean it's applied. And this is where we have to be careful. For example, the Malikis and the Hanafis, we don't raise our hands in Salah. Maybe somebody comes and says, Boy, why don't you raise your hands from Ruku? Because the Malikis say this wasn't from the A'mal of the people. So the Malikis and the Hanafis consider what's from Riwayat of the Sahaba, not the same as what was practiced by the Sahaba. We have a Qaida, Usuriya, not the group Yamaulana. A qa'idah, the, the, the qa'idah, which means here a rule that says what? Al-a'malu aqwa min al-aqwal. That actions and sharia from the time of the Sahaba and the people of Medina and Kufa and so on are given more legitimacy than their statements. So, for example, sometimes we find Abu Huraira, he would say that the Prophet said something, but he will do differently. So we take his action over what he related on the Prophet because we understand he knew that it was allowed as a Sahabi who will not do this action. 
This action is more for raised to the Prophet So sometimes we find the hadith is sahih, but the ulama use that hadith to prove opposite points. The same hadith. So for example, the hadith of the Prophet who said, there's no salah for the jaru masjid illa fil masjid. There's no prayer in the masjid for the one who lives, there's no prayer for the one who lives next to the masjid except in the masjid. Abu Hanifa and Malik and Ash-Shafi'i, rahimahumullah, they said this hadith proves that it's recommended to pray in the mosque. It's recommended, not an obligation. So that's why if you go to like Egypt or Pakistan, in many places when the time of prayer comes, they don't close the shops. It's mustahab. Why? Because they say here, and I hope I can explain this, because Arabic is a language which is concentrated, and there's something missing in the language here. يعني لا نفيت الجنس وخبرها محذوفة لا صلاة رجال المسجد إلا في المسجد يعني لا صلاة صحيحة أو كاملة. So the ulama here they differ. Does it mean that there's no prayer at all? That the prayer is invalid for the one who lives next to the masjid, except in the masjid? Or does it mean that his prayer is not complete but still valid? So three of them said, the word that's hidden in the sentence is complete. The Hanbali said, the word that's missing is what? Is sound. So that's why you see the Hanbali used this hadith to prove their opinion, which is the opposite. And the Shafi's and the Maliki's and the Hanafi's used the same hadith to prove the opposite opinion on the same issue. Understand? Also the usage of Arabic language and context in explaining the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. When he said, The Prophet ﷺ said, as related by Imam uh, Abdullah bin Umar from Bukhari Muslim, when he said, I was ordered to fight the people. We find some of our brothers and sisters online, they tell our young brothers and sisters, the people here means anas, anas, all human beings. So we can ask them, did the Prophet send a Jaish to Sin? And did the Prophet send an army to China? Did the Prophet send an army to Shubra, Ta'ana? Did the Prophet send an army to Russia or Europe? Or did he send armies to certain places? So here the word, the people in Arabic, could have a different meaning, about 13. We don't have time to talk about all of them. One of them could be istighraq, yani all people, jinns. For example, we say, the praise is due to Allah. Yani alhamdulillah, means all praise is due to Allah. Every type of praise. So when he said, umirtu anuqatil al-nas, does it mean all human beings? Did the Prophet allow us to kill children? Did the Prophet allow us to kill children? So it doesn't mean all human beings. Did the Prophet allow us to kill women? And the old people, and the people of religion? La, so here, you khasas. So it doesn't mean all people. Secondly, are there other ahadith that show us who the people are? Because this hadith was said on the day of Khandaq. When the companions of the Prophet were surrounded in Medina by the mushrikeen from the Arabs. So when the Prophet said, Al-Nas, is it ma'hud al-dhikni or dhikri? Is it understood in their mind who he's talking about? For example, if I walk by this uncle and I said, Yeah, this one uncle. Or I saw an uncle, then I said, This uncle. Means this uncle, yeah. Lisharat. 
So the Prophet ﷺ, was he talking about someone before? And then he said, Anas, so that the companions knew who was he talking about? Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. As Allah says in the Quran, الَّذِينَ قَالَ لَهُمُ النَّاسِ إِنَّ النَّاسَ قَدْ جَمَعُوا لَكُمْ فَخْشَوْهُمْ In the same context, in Surah Ali Imran, Allah says, those who say to them that the people are coming to gather against you. All humanity at that time was gathered against the campaigns or the mushrikeen of the Arabs. The mushrikeen of the Arabs. So in this hadith, when he said, وَمِرْتْ عَنُ قَاتِلَ النَّاسِ It doesn't mean all humanity, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but can يَقْصِدْ مُشْرِكِينَ الْعَرَبِ And the proof of this is the hadith, the same hadith, related by Imam al-Nasai in his collection when the Prophet said, an was ordered to fight the mushrikeen in the Arabs. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us a good understanding of the sunnah. And we don't have time. Wallahi, this topic is not good. Wallahi, to give this topic this time. Ihtiraman Rasulillah. Our respect for the Prophet But to only give it 30 minutes or an hour, it's not acceptable. He told me, talk for 10 minutes. I said, you're crazy. This is the sunnah of the Prophet Will we will we say to ourselves, let's watch the Super Bowl for five minutes? Or you know, let's watch you know cricket PK TV you know, for five minutes. There's no way we will accept it. But when we talk about the Prophet, yalla, yalla, make it quick. We say So we should not treat these kind of topics in this way. Yani we, we should give them their time and their respect so that we can gain an understanding of sunnah and also we can understand how far the community has gone away from understanding the sunnah of the Prophet <laughs> sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we'll take some questions inshallah. <coughs> questions if not, wa'jazakamallahu khairan wa sallidahu ala sayyidu muhammad wa ala sallidahu wa sallidahu wa sallidahu wa He's asking about sharia finances uh, and uh, how it's being used maybe inappropriately or appropriately. And also the ramifications upon the non-Muslim community who are scared. Number one, we, we can easily remind them that many religious groups in America, including the Jews and the Catholics, and even certain religious groups, they have their own financial entities. It's something that's perfectly legal in America. Something that's guaranteed by our, our, our Constitution. But as far as the legitimacy of these organizations like Guidance and others, Wallahi Abolana, I just came from Egypt two months ago. So I don't know. I haven't dealt with these groups. But I have heard things from people. And everywhere that I've traveled, I'm starting to hear things. I can't say that this is listakrat time. But what needs to happen is that, again, we need, to, we need to institutionalize in our community. We need to have quality service control organizations. Even the issue of zabiha, for those people who are very concerned about the type of meat that they eat, there should be some type of body that makes sure that restaurants and, and factories... I mean, honestly... I've been into some Muslim butchers. Wallahi, I became sick to my stomach when I saw like it wasn't clean, right? And also the fact that the ulama said there's a consensus that you cannot buy meat from someone who doesn't pray. Nobody ever talks about this. And ijma, that you cannot buy meat from someone. So now we need Abu Ahmed Sah. We need a set of quality control organizations. As for the financial problem, what needs to happen is an independent body of scholars, not just scholars and deans, scholars also in finance and economics, to sit together and look at these companies and give us a rating on consumer reports. And to talk to people who engage with these companies, what were their experience, and so on and so forth. And this is where our community is headed.
What does the Quran mean when it says that we should not take up the disbelievers as awliya protectors? These verses again also apply to the Quran, the context. These verses are talking about a war. So if you're fighting your brother, you will not side. And also there's some details to this. That also it's not completely as it is. But in general, you are not to take like treason, treasonous action against your brother. It's not talking about friends in high school and college and work. And awliya here doesn't mean astiqa. But there's a difference between awliya and astiqa. I know homosexuality in Islam is not allowed, however, how must a Muslim deal with homosexual tendencies around us? Number one, a homosexual Muslim is not Catholic. You have to be careful. We're not khawarij. The khawarij were people who consider people not Muslim because of major sins. They're not from Ahl Sunnah. But Ahl Sunnah, as mentioned by Imam al-Tahawi, and others, we believe that anyone who commits a major sin, he repents to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and she repents to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he can forgive them and he can punish them. But we don't make takfir. And Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala, he mentioned that we do not declare someone a non-Muslim in face of the following. Number one, doubt about their Islam. If we doubt that there is Muslim or non-Muslim, we believe that they're Muslim. Because the right of a Muslim is what? Is to, have, to anyone actually, is a good suspicion. Number two is that it's not based on a, taking a position that they knew a scholar held. We do not make takfir of ta'bi because of ta'wilat. That's why we don't call the mu'tazila kuffar. But we call them ahlu bid'ah. And there's a difference between ahlu bid'ah and kufr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can forgive them, He can punish them as He wants. Number, number three, that it's established that they know what they've done is kufr. And that's why Shaykh al-Islam, and I have this lecture actually preparing Mikdah for me. About Ibn Taymiyyah, because people are portraying Ibn Taymiyyah as some kind of wild, you know, takfir maniac. And, and, and this actually is a great crime against him. And Dr. William Chittick, recently in the Huffington Post, he called Ibn Taymiyyah a cankerous scholar. Someone who claims to be a Sufi, we should ask him, is this the result of your Sufism? That you would call another scholar cankerous? So we have to be careful. But what Shaykh al-Islam, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, when he debated the Jamhiyyah, the Jamhiyyah are a group which Ahl Sunnah agree are kuffar. And in his time, uh, uh, Rahimahullah, he was debating them, and you know what he said to a group of them? He said, Qawlukum kufr, lakinnakum lashtum kafirin. He said, your statement is kufr, but you are not kuffar. They said, why? He said, because you're dumb people. <laughs> he said, And I understood what you said, and you don't understand what you're saying. Look, 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 even though it's a little bit rough, but look at the Rahmah also. Because if he said, you're kufar, <laughs> it's on like a break of dawn. So he said to them, What you said is kufar, but you are not kufar, because you are stupid people. You don't understand, you're just regurgitating something you read from some shaykh in the past. And subhanallah, and these are the conditions of takfir actually that he labeled, that are agreed upon by the ulama. And also, finally, that we do not make takfir of someone for a major sin. Even if, even look what Imam al-Dahabi said. I will say something, wallahi, you won't believe me. May Allah make you to read it and believe it for yourself. Imam al-Dahabi, who's the student of Ibn Taymiyyah, said, in Sirah al he said, if I walked into the the maqbara, and I saw a Muslim making sujood 
in front of a grave, I will not consider him as a non-Muslim until I talk to him. Now we can see a Muslim going in a bar, we can see a Muslim out with a girl, will make takfir of Look at Adhani, rahimahullah, look at his, how delicate and nuanced he is in his understanding. And even some children, parents, they come to me and say, my parents told me I'm kafir. <laughs> it's the worst thing you can tell your kids, the kafir. <laughs> Although it's funny, we should remember the statement of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the sound Islam, that if you call someone as kafir and it's not true, it goes back to you. This applies to your kids also. She said the best things. So we do not say people that are gay are homosexuals, uh, are out of Islam. Number two, we do not say they cannot come to the masjid and worship. And we have a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to sin anyways. We don't ask and you don't tell. People come to me, they say, Wallahi and Ahmed, I don't care what you do. No, but no, there's no confession, Ya Mawlana. There's no confession in Islam between you and Allah. And the Prophet said, All of my ummah are forgiven except those who reveal their sins. Fourth, our community has to take it very seriously that we have sexual problems in our community that transcend single people and also affect marriages. And I have cases of sexual abuse of children in our community. And as long as we continue to put things under the rug, my mother used to tell me, you keep putting things under the rug, one day you're going to trip over the rug and fall on your face. But what we should consider now is to find Muslim professionals who are counselors. And now in California, mashallah, we have Sheikh Yashar Fazaba. We should invite here, man. Incredible, who has a PhD in psychiatry, who now started to deal with this, uh, you know, these brothers and sisters in our community who are coming and saying, I'm dealing with this type of tendencies. As an imam, I don't know. I didn't learn about this in Azhar. And I have to be honest with you. I can give you some faith advice, some imaniyat, but you need also clinical help. And as a community, if we condemn people, but we don't offer them the ability to change themselves, we should start condemning ourselves first. Because there's no taklif bila wasa'in. You cannot ask people to do things without the means to do it. So we should look as a community to have private, uh, secret counseling. It's not going to show in the newspaper on Friday, such and such saw Fulan and talked about this and that. That, that can help our brothers and sisters with drug, drug addiction, porn addiction, people that are having problems in their marriage, and also homosexuality uh, in the community. Can I celebrate birthdays, Thanksgiving, July 4th? You have an imam in this community, right? Ask the imam. No, I'm being serious. You have a local imam. That's what his job is. He's, when I'm here, he's my imam. I'm going to pray behind him. And I'm going to ask him questions. This type of question you should ask your imam. What's your answer to My answer is ask the imam. <laughs> no, I celebrate my children's uh, birthdays. Uh, because the brother, Eiduna Eidan, the Prophet said, our Eids are two Eids. As most of the Fuqaha said, here he means Eid from the point of religion, not from the point of Adam. And the proof of this is called Itariya, which was a celebration that the Arabs had before the time of the Prophet ﷺ, in the month of Rajab, uh, Rajab excuse me, and, and continued even after his death, وسلم, up until almost 300 years after his death, وسلم, the Bedouins, in the month of Rajab, they will get together, they will bring some meat, 
they'll slaughter the meat and they have, mashallah, big Bedouin party. So the fuqaha, the Malikis and the Hanbalis in particular, this case was brought to them. That these Bedouins, they are celebrating this holiday that they had before the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Now he's died and they keep doing it. What's the ruling? Sadatu Malikiya said makru. Why? Because it became, it's from Jahili. So it's makru, but not haram. It's disliked. And we know that makru, something that's disliked, if there's a sincere need for it, became permissible. According to the scholars of the Hanafi, as well as the majority of the ulama. The Hanbalis, which subhanAllah might surprise you, the Hanbalis actually is the easiest madhab to follow on Islam. They have more uh, dispensation than any madhab is the Hanbali madhab. The Hanbalis said, it's permissible. Not makru. Why? They said, that the origin of things outside of strict religious practice is permissibility. Because they understood that's the, the statement of the Prophet that there are Eids, our two Eids, to mean our religious Eids, not the Eids that came from custom. The same for Thanksgiving. But for those of us who convert to Islam, I tell you, celebrate this stuff. Why? Our situation is different than yours. And the fatwa has to change now. As a convert to Islam, the most opportune time I had to talk about religion is at holidays. Even Christmas. I'll go to my mother's house and she'll tell me, why don't you believe Jesus is God? That's the only time she's going to ask me this question. Well, Adam, they said, So then I'm like, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I don't celebrate Christmas. But I'll go and say to my mother, you know, I hope that you have a good holiday. You know what? what? And then she'll tell me, so why don't you believe in my Jesus? Good question. Now we can talk. I, don't, I do believe in Jesus. What do you mean you believe? I just don't believe he's a God. So every year you can drop a seed. Every year you have a chance to. And what happens when I became Muslim, people told me everything is forbidden. So when Mother's Day came, man, my mother, you don't celebrate Mother's Day in my house. You're going to get killed. <laughs> I went to my mother and said, I ain't celebrating this, I ain't celebrating this. And she started crying. Tell me, what kind of religion you have? And believe me, those of you converted to Islam, it took me years to fix this stuff, till now. Because our situation is different than those of you who celebrate Eid in your house with Laddu and Mansif and those of us who converted to Islam, we celebrate our Eid at IHOP. <laughs> because we don't have a family to go to. And if we destroy any possibility, man, of keeping that relationship with our families, we're not going to be able to even talk to them about Islam. Yeah. So here, the fatwa changed according to the person. The person. I have a different take on what you just said. You follow the seerah of the Sahaba and the Quran in Mecca is... Is coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Aqidah was, in, includes the struggle of their jahiliyyah, what they used to have before Islam. And that is what you, you, what you have before you converted to Islam. You have holidays that is identifies with uh, uh, jahil, which is ignorance that uh, they consider that the Messiah salam, is the Son of God. Or, or, or certain things that is uh, what Thanksgiving is. It is a religious to the uh, American Indians where they believe in certain powers as, as, as gods. 
So therefore, I consider if you, if you, if you, in your congregation, help the people that they have, when it comes to Aqidah, they have to struggle not just against what is around them from the others, but against among themselves, which is what they have when it comes before they conduct it. Brother, I have, uh, in this regard, I have a very beautiful question there. I always have a problem with this. Anywhere I go, most likely, most of the Kitabis, they either, as you mentioned, what your mom said, either Jesus is the Son of God, or uh, God is one of three. If, because you got the experience, and you've been, you've been on that side in there, have you ever come across people that they believe that Allah, there is Allah, and there is, uh, Jesus is not his son, and he is not one of three? The Unitarians. The United uh, States. Yeah, the Unitarians. Unitarians. That's why they call Muahidu. I mean here in the United States. Yeah. Which country? Yeah. 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 They believe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's the name of their church, you said? Unitarian. Unitarian. Yeah. Zakhalaf, Allah, Uh some more questions. What is the best way of developing khushur in prayer? Is number one to think about death before you pray and where you're going to end up. As the Prophet said, Sallu Salata Wanda. Pray as though it's your last prayer. Secondly, when you come to the masjid, turn off your phone. Yeah. And take some time to sit and prepare for salah. If you have a job interview or you have an interview for a scholarship, you're not going to like walk into the office of the chancellor and you're going to be twitting. Well, I'm with the chancellor now. Totally awesome. Or you're on Facebook. You know, I'm, I'm with, like, you know, the president of my college. He said, what are you doing? I'm just Facebooking my job. But when you come into the masajid, and that's why I believe, wallahi, we should have fatwa that says it's makruh to do this in the masajid. If it's makruh to talk about the dunya in the masajid, then we have to make qiyas on these things and say it's makruh to use them. Unless, of course, like you have an emergency, you know, you're a doctor at your job. Or, you know, you put on, on vibration because your wife and children might have some emergency. This is something different. But in general, so we should avoid sitting in the masjid and right before salah and talking about everything except worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number three is to have good friends and to actually have uh, an ability to monitor yourself and your five prayers at the end of the day. How was my khushu? And this will be a great iPhone app, by the way. Yeah? Khushu app. <laughs> How was your salah for the day? And you can see, are you from the Khashim? Are there any female scholars whom you know and recommend to come speak in Colombia? As a Muslim girl, sometimes I feel there are some questions that I feel more comfortable asking a woman for various reasons. One being they have first-hand experience as Muslim in the USA and may be able to better understand and answer questions. This is a very good question, mashallah. We have a sister named Muslima Purnell. Muslima Parmel. She writes for my website, swahibweb.com. Uh, she's doing a master's in Egypt now in Sharia. She's finishing her degree in Al-Azhar. She did her high school in Al-Azhar. She's born and raised in America. She has a degree from, from San Diego State. And also she's doing, also she's doing a master's uh, at AUC uh, in Cairo in Islamic studies. And her husband. And mashallah, she lives in San Diego. She's a mass member. I would encourage you to invite her and her husband. Also, he's a scholar himself, mashallah. And they have a website, I think it's called the IAU, the IAU.com. Also, there's a sister, Zainab Abdurazak in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, mashallah, who is a beneficial scholar. Uh, inshallah, we have increase the number of sisters who are scholars. 
How can a teenager help out the ummah and fulfill their duties to Islam with all the other things they have to do like school? You should balance out your efforts and you should not try to save the ummah with one paint of the brush. But what you should do is try to first of all focus on yourself and your relationship with Allah and your relationship with your parents. And then you should choose something in the community that has to do with seeking knowledge and also will benefit the community and a social setting. Even if it's at your high school, you can do like can drives and so on for the flood victims of Pakistan. Now we have the flood victims of uh, in Indonesia. Also, uh, we have a number of indigenous families in the St. Louis area. So you can do a host of things in the name of Islam, inshallah, there will be a means of penetrating others. There's a question that said, do not read it out loud. So, the question is at the bottom. So, if you need to. Uh, is it against Islam to take medicine for mental problems or to see a psychologist? Is it something I could control or simply being, being attempting to understand Islam better and working on it without medicine? Do we have any psychologists here? Yeah, is anyone here? Psychologist? So someone that has severe depression, can they cure it themselves or they need to take medicine? It's very severe. Ask the people who know if you don't know. So he's saying, Dr. Saab, they're saying that if it's a severe depression, you're not being serious, you should take the medicine. And the Prophet said, Ya Allah, O servants of Allah, seek remedies for your illnesses. So, at times, seeking a remedy, depending on the severity of it, can be recommended, can be uh, also an obligation. That if someone doesn't seek help for an illness that they have, and they die of this illness, they'll be asked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about the body that He gave them. Sallallahu alayhi wa fi jasadi fi ma'amalafi. As the Prophet said, about jasadi, about his body and how he used his body. So yes, it's, it's certainly commendable to do so. I would recommend definitely in the psychiatric field that you should try to see a Muslim. Doctor, if you can, someone that has some background in understanding your faith, and also for, for other types of therapy. In yesterday's talk, you mentioned talfiq, which means to mix and match. Today you spoke about an order in which to approach scholar Islamic text and with understanding how do we self-teach ourselves while following tradition and being evaluative, critical of what we read. Well, keep in mind that the processes of learning I talked about today are for the one who's looking for scholarship, not for the common Muslim. But for the common, common Muslim as Al-Qarafi, Al-Maliki, he mentioned Al-Ihkam, and others, uh, the Suqi, he mentioned Shah Kabir. Uh, that the Muslim has the right to consult different scholars, different people who are qualified, and ask them questions and follow the answer that they feel most comfortable with. This is agreed upon amongst the ulama. The type of talfiq sister, and I'm going to say it again, because I want you to understand this well, the type of talfiq which is madmoon, which is looked down upon, is for you to bring a host of opinions together that would agree to an opinion which is not accepted by orthodox Islam. So, for example, I gave it yesterday. The Malikis, we have certain positions about the witnesses in Nikah. The Hanafis have a position about the Wali in Nikah. So now you take the position of the Malikis without the, the witnesses. You take the position of the Hanafis without a Wali. This is a picture which Ahl Sunnah, which Orthodox Islam, does not agree as being accepted. 
this is the type of tanfiq which is haram. But for you to ask Jamal Badawi, to ask you know Hamza Yusuf or Yasu Qadhi or whoever about something, and you find an opinion that makes sense to you, and you feel that it's applicable to you and that you can practice it, that's what Allah orders you to do in the Quran. فَاسْأَلُوا in kuntum For the serious student of knowledge, you should study a madhab from A to Z. But not only should you study a madhab, you should study the history of fiqh. How did you get these madhahib? What were the geographical as well as historical influences upon these madhahib? Third, secondly, you should not study a madhab to come to the mosque and say, you know what, in my madhab we pray Juma at this time, you pray Juma at this time, I'm not going to pray with you. This is not the fruit of studying the madhahib. But the Imam of the community, and here, mashallah, you have an excellent Imam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, protect him and raise his status, is the one you should follow. Because if you're studying a madhab to split your community, then here we have to take into consideration the benefit and the harms of the community. And splitting the community is from one of the major sins of Islam, as mentioned by Abu Hamid al-Ghazali and other ulama. So the talfiq that she's asking me about is taking a bunch of opinions, bringing them together, and drawing from that a picture that's not found in Orthodox Islam. How to gain literacy is to study with a curriculum, to study with a laid-out curriculum that can tell you from point A to point Z, this is what you're going to study, just like when you go and study at a university. And this is a good question, and I'm very happy uh, that she asked for clarification. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless her. I have a question about uh, there's a man in my community who uh, believes that we should be praying east not northeast and he won't come to Jum'ah and he won't come to anything I mean he's a really good Muslim man but he just won't come to Jum'ah or anything else I mean, I've, I've tried it for about 10 years now and he's not being he's not convinced he said the Qibhat is east yeah he said to and you try it now for 10 years Something like that. <laughs> you should talk to the imam, you can talk to some of the leadership. What can you do? I mean, he believes that he should pray the way he came from, which was, you know, by playing. Where he came from, he should pray the same qibla. Yeah. So if he came from Malaysia, for example, he'd still be praying southeast. Or like, not. Uh, or oh, sorry, Cairo. Or he's, he's thinking about Mecca. Too. Yeah, the. Can't afford him. Yes, brother. <laughs> Uh, you spent seven years at Azhar, uh, mashallah. What are some of the highlights of your education there? I didn't study in Azhar, also I studied what's called Dar Iftah. So I studied for about five, six years, and then I worked for the Mufti of Egypt for two years. So what's the highlight is I realize I don't know that much. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I learned. And I learned that you have to be humble, inshallah, and you have to be a good person. You cannot simply say you have knowledge and be a creep. <laughs> May Allah protect us and help us. Without my wonderful wife, I would have become a creep a long time ago. So you need, you need people around you that can put you in check. And mashallah, may Allah reward her, inshallah. So that's what I learned. When I, when I left Al-Azhar, I met one of my friends who was a Malaysian who was studying in Azhar for a long time. And I asked him, Talim, yani, alim he told me, I learned I don't know anything. In the sense of, I have so much more I need to study. Not that he doesn't know anything. So that's what we should say. Yes, brother. I have a question on 
Kosher beef? You can ask the Imam here, inshallah. Ask, ask, I don't know. I don't shop, but I don't know. Do you have like Safeway here? What? I don't know. What do you have? The question is that, like, uh, when we talk about we can eat meat that is slaughtered by people of the book. Yeah. So let's say, for example, Christian or Jewish people. Okay. Like when a Christian slaughter a cow, let's say, to make it, or a Jew slaughter a cow to make it, let's say, meat. Yeah. Like for Christian, Christianity, I mean, I just, we just heard that there is only one group who believe in just one God. Yeah. And Jesus as a prophet. Rest other Christian, they are not believing God as a as a single God. Yeah. And they're believing Jesus as a son okay. So basically they're slaughtering the food by the name of Jesus Christ. Actually they're not slaughtering by the name of anything about that. <laughs> but even if they slaughtered in the name of Jesus Christ, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran said, Wala don't say Trinity. So he acknowledged in the Quran that they believed in Tathneeth. But still he allowed us But still he said that their food is allowable for us. So the ulama said the illa, the reason that we're allowed to eat their meat is because of prophethood. Not because of their issue of tathith and so on. Yes. But it depends on how they slaughter it. No, that's not my answer. I'm not talking about eating meat or not eating meat. I'm talking, yeah, I'm not going to, no, 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 I'm not going there. No, no, I'm not going there. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, just to answer his question, this issue, Ya Sheikh, is this record is as old as Elvis. Okay. (laughs) Actually, Abdul Hadi. We don't need to keep playing this record over and over again. If you want to eat the meat, that's your business. Say Bismillah. If you don't want to eat the meat, although saying Bismillah at the time of slaughter, according to the Shafi'i Madhab, is not wajib. Sorry to say that. But, that's your opinion. If you want to eat, to eat or not to eat, that is the question. <laughs> I'm not Shakespeare. You do what you want. This issue, they argued over it since the early days till now. But let me say this, and I'm going to get myself in trouble now. Okay. What we should consider is supporting Muslim businesses and keeping the dollar in our community. And also creating farms where we can hire brothers who come out of prison, Brothers who come into Islam or brothers who come from overseas don't have the educational know-how yet to get high-tech jobs. Wouldn't it be feasible to create like large farms where these brothers can work and earn some money? Right? So even if you don't you eat or don't eat, economically we need to start thinking about our community. Keeping the dollar in our community. Right? Sorry, I'm not trying to go back. Don't ask about music either. Okay. <laughs> Um, what are came from Cape Girard a long, far distance, mashallah. Mashallah. I was wondering, what are some good websites I can guide like new converts to? Good websites for new converts? Yeah. I know this one, but it's one white dude. <laughs> uh, pretty good. Pretty good website, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that website. <laughs> Is a handsome guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say, uh, you know, you have uh, MuslimMatters.org is a good website. Um, you have Imam Zay, Imam Zay Shakir has a website called New Islamic Direction. But the best thing I've seen really for new Muslims is a series that was recorded by Dr. Jamal Badawi about 30 years ago. Uh, and basically he goes from how to pray, how to make wudu, issues of belief, certain issues of practice. And that's on Islamic City, I think it's .com.org, I can't remember, Islamic City, right? That whole, it's like 365 lectures, man. So you can listen to one a day, 
And after one year, a new Muslim would have a very good literacy of Islam. And that's what actually, when I first became Muslim, I actually had the cassettes. Right, back in the days when we knew cassettes, no cassettes are right. <laughs> so it's like these plastic things with like paper inside, <laughs> two little holes, right? So um, I used to listen to it uh, on cassette, and I really gained uh, a lot just about basic practice of this. That's a very good series. Have written Islamic City. Not actually. I don't know the URL. Jeff, he's had a question for a This is kind of a big question, but I think it's something that maybe we don't discuss enough. Um, to what extent do you think, like to your knowledge, um, is interaction with the opposite sex permissible, and does it have anything to do with like what culture you grew up with, whether you're man or woman, married or unmarried? Universal. This is mentioned in the Quran. He's asking about intermingling between the sexes. So we find the story of Moses and Musa when he asked the women, Can I help you with your water? And he said, Abu Nashaykh Also in the story of Musa, where his sister said, When his sister came in front of Pharaoh and his people and said to them, Can I guide you to the one who can breastfeed this baby? So the ulama took from this that if there's a need, not dorora, hajat, a need, right? So for example, dawah is a need, MSA work is a need, yeah. for the people to mix together with a proper setting, meaning that, you know, people aren't there like at a nightclub or something. Okay. And there's this need, then jazz is permissible in the face of hajat. But he should not be alone with her, she should not be alone with him, as a group I'm talking. But like a normal everyday... Like normal everyday is hajjah, ya Just For example. Like, if you go to college and you're a student, like, maybe you have to study with somebody from class. So, have to study, is it a need? Like, yeah. maybe you have, like, a group project or something. It'd be weird if you... This is hajjah, they should use. When I was in college, I was the imam of the last year. Okay, in Oklahoma. Oklahoma. And I remember, <laughs> you know who I had to do a group project with? I had to. The homecoming queen of the college. <laughs> so, I remember I was making dua that, she, that I would not be partnered with her. Because, <laughs> okay. unfortunately, Allah knew I can handle it. So, uh, I remember she asked me, you know, like, where do you want to meet? You know, you want to go out, you know, like to the club, something like that. And I said, we can meet at the library at 830 <laughs> she was shocked, yeah. But after a while, she understood. And actually, she was like, she started opening up to me. And she's like, man, my life is horrible, man. All these guys just want my phone number. They just want to have sex with me. They don't, they don't care about who I am. You know, they just look at me like this and this and this. She's like, you met me at 8 30 in the morning in the library, man. I was like, yeah, I did, unfortunately. <laughs> but I had no choice. So this is Hajjah, yeah, whatever. This is a Hajjah. But if I went up to her and said, hey, what you doing on Friday? <laughs> this is not Hajj, I'm one of you. This is not acceptable. So this is not acceptable. But okay. well, if, say, a lady has to call you from school and ask you about a project, it's normal. To say salam to a sister on campus is acceptable. And it, what type of message are we sending to Muslim women? If we don't even speak to them, but then when we go to the bank and we find, you know, 
uh, you know, some lady from, you know, some crazy, bucked out wild system. And we're like shaking hands, oh, hi, how are you? I'm Muslim, I'm accepting of everyone. <laughs> we give that image. But then our own sister comes like, I'm scoffing What we're doing is reinforcing that Islam has no value. Now, what we're sending is a message that your Islam means nothing. Your tadayun means nothing. But our tafassuq means everything to me. And what we're finding now is some women in our community in their mid-30s are on Prozac. Why? Because they feel, I gave my life to the community, and people won't even say salam to me. And that's, I'm not going to say I get in trouble. But certain considerations are going to have to be made on cultural lines and how we deal with Muslim sisters in our community. In Dawah, when is it appropriate to ask someone if they want to become Muslim? I mean, usually it's better to let them ask you if I want to become Muslim. Uh, but if you like, really feel that they're, you know, I don't have an answer for that. I didn't study that in Azhar. It's something that you're going to feel. What are the most important things about Islam to mention to non-believers? It depends who you're talking to. Here's a question that's going to change according to situation, time, and place, and person. And the, the person that you're talking to. There's no uh, one single answer for this. I know a brother, he was in the projects, and he had a, a neighbor who had like lines of women coming in out of his home. So one day he saw this friend of mine, Omar. He saw Omar and he said to him, he was like, man, your religion is good, but uh, you know, I got a problem with ladies, man. You know, I got 99 problems. And the woman is one. Right? So then, I didn't say that it's not. So, so what happened is Omar told him, well, in Islam, you can have four, man. <laughs> now, it's illegal, of course. But then he said, really? He said, you can have four, the four, you know? He's like, I didn't know that. And that's how he actually started talking to this guy about Islam. And so Omar said, you're not going to go to my mother and she'll knock your head off. Right? But it depends on who you're talking to, right? And the questions that they have and the circumstances in their life, what you're going to tell them about Islam. Are you what? Something on the light side, you mentioned you're from Norman. I'm from Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, okay. Yeah. So you're close to the Sooners. How do you feel about Mizu beating the Sooners last week? <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I answer that? <laughs> when you beat us, you celebrate. When we beat you, we don't care. Uh. <laughs> and we happen to beat you twice in one year. <laughs> and we beat you like a stepchild. <laughs> Finally, let me add let me add one more thing. You're from Albania anyways. <laughs> let me add also that the big twelve championship is around the corner. <laughs> Oh, you can make Nebraska. We want you ready for us. Rahmatan lekum. Chase Daniels got Chase out of You opened up a can of worms, man. But honestly, you're selling shirts that say sooner or later. We don't sell shirts when we beat you. Trying. Tony the Tiger. Right? <laughs> it's like beating St. Louis University or something. We don't care. We beat Texas as something big. Florida State? Big. Missouri? Daddy. I'm stop now. I'm stop now before it gets ugly. But it's like, 
Time? I think I think it was a great game. You deserve to win. Our defensive line was horrible. And our quarterback got scared. And what happened? What happened? Yes, brother. Coming to the series, it's back. No big max. Uh, coming off is one of the Sharaat uh, of Salah. And uh, I was wondering if a woman can uh, offer prayers or come to the mosque and pray in tight jeans and shirt and scarf. Can she pray in tight jeans and shirt? Yes. It's my crew. But can she walk around in tight jeans and shirt? No, it's haram. So, so if they come to, uh, to to the mosque, so one is haram and then it's mokum. Yeah. <laughs> Got it? <laughs> Back to the game. So, Allah, <laughs> we'll finish now for Jazakumullah and we'll sell them on the Sayyid Muhammad. Ask Allah subhanahu wa to bless this community, uh, to raise you, inshallah, and to protect you and to bless your kids, and to bless those who came, mashallah, the brother and some sisters uh, who came from far away. May Allah subhanahu wa make your efforts acceptable to Him. And also, you told me of one brother who's quite ill. His name is Dr. Qureshi. Dr. Qureshi, ask Allah subhanahu wa to make things easy for Him to cure him, inshallah. Sorry, I'm going to say no, 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 sorry